0: Today we're talking about private debt and specifically direct lending. It's an area where a lot of funds are flowing and we're joined by Invesco's Ron Kantowitz, who's a managing director and head of private debt. Ron, thanks for being on. Sure, thank you very much for having me. We are thrilled that you're here. You have a lot of responsibility with regard to portfolios and meeting their objectives. And I wanna get into the details of that But first, I'd like to talk about what do you think the macro environment is right now? I know that your specialty is direct lending, but I'm hoping you can talk about private debt more generally of what is top of mind for credit investors right now?
1: Sure, sure. So um, that's a great question. Look, these are really interesting times, right? We're living in environments of, of geopolitical dynamics, rising interest rates, record volatility. And all of those components ultimately suggest greater risk. And you see that risk in the private debt world manifesting itself in the context of, Challenges on the labor side, rising raw material costs, supply chain disruptions. You know, I think all of these things ultimately drive us to to focusing on a singular thing. This is about disciplined asset selection, and it's always a key component of direct lending. But I think given everything we're seeing in the macro environment today, the height we have to have a greater heightened focus and thinking very carefully about where we put our money.
0: It's really interesting there is so much money flowing to private assets and rates have come up substantially. And that'll be interesting to see if that changes that flow, but it certainly doesn't look like it, right? There's a broad spectrum of private debt and a lot of choice. What factors are driving investors into private assets and in particular, which sectors? Sure sure so look
1: this is um you know direct lending by its very nature is a defensive asset class right it's typically senior secured it typically aligns with world class private equity investors it offers current income, it's floating rate in nature. So when you think about the opportunity set and you think about the risks we talked about just a a few moments ago, when you look at this asset class, it's growing. It offers investors a lot of the mitigants that they're looking for as they think about their overall portfolio and they think about the risks they're dealing with today. As an example, when you compare direct lending to the broader debt and equity markets, what you'll see is the asset class tends to demonstrate significantly lower volatility. And as a consequence of that, it has lower correlation with all these other asset classes. And notwithstanding all the different underlying risks in many of the the liquid asset classes in the market today, we tend to see many of them move in tandem. And so one of the really compelling dynamics that direct lending offers is this ability to sort of diversify your overall investment pool and protect against some of the just fundamental trends and and dynamics we're seeing across the market.
0: Well, it's interesting because I was actually – Talking with a senior person at Liberty Mutual this week, and they pointed out I mean, the Lehman Ag is down something on the order of 12%, and the duration has extended out to six and a half, right? That's a big hit. It's bigger than the financial crisis in terms of total return. It's not in terms of, it's not in the basis is what went up. It's not a spread move, it's a basis change. But it's, I mean, to your point, floating rate asset, you know, the extension that the Ag has seen, I mean, it's challenging right now, right? Yeah. So private credit, direct lending, obviously not done through a public offering. Where is your team seeing deal flow? How are you sourcing investments today? Sure. So, you know, let's
1: take a step back. What is direct lending? Right. Direct lending. The definition of direct lending is we are making loans to companies and businesses without the use of an intermediary. Right. And so we're directly interacting with borrowers and with private equity firms. And specifically, when you talk about direct lending, you're talking about middle market companies. And when you look at the opportunity set in the United States today, you know, there are something like 200,000 middle market companies in the U.S. It represents a third of private side GDP. It employs, uh, you know, over 50 million individuals within the country. This is an enormous opportunity set. And then the second piece of this then is you have to think about, well, where's the demand side? What drives investment opportunity? And what we know from experience is private equity represent more than 75% of the demand within direct lending. And private equity continue to amass record sums of capital. And for them to execute their strategy, they need our direct lending assets. And so, If you work with the right private equity firms and you focus within the right subsegments, and I'll talk about that in a second, you know, the demand side is pretty significant. And when we think about, to your question, what segments do we want to focus on? You know, there are two words we love to use when we talk about what's the right direct lending company to invest in. And those two words are stable and boring. And I make that point because we remind ourselves we're not equity investors. I'm not looking for businesses that are going to grow at 20% a year and show 500 basis point margin improvements. If I'm finding those businesses, there's probably some other potential risks that I may not want to incur in terms of my investment thesis. So for me, you know, Boring, stable businesses rule the day. I want fine businesses where after I go through an extensive underwriting process and I think about all the projections and modeling these things out, the inherent assumptions I'm using in terms of extrapolating these businesses out over the next three years from a financial performance perspective – aren't materially different from what we've seen these businesses do over the past three to four years. So how does that translate into sectors? Well, again, it's these core sectors. It's healthcare, it's business services, it's industrials, it's consumer products. It's it's businesses where you can understand you know, where these businesses have come from, what their market share is, who their customers are, and you can have great visibility in terms of how they're going to perform going forward.
0: And the most, I mean, this is nothing new, right? But there's a a record amount of issuance private equity has a lot of dry powder you've been at this a while how have you seen the direct lending market evolve over the last few years
1: yeah that you know that's a great question you know it's interesting when we talk about the evolution of direct lending and i think about it there's really two components to the evolution first you have to go back 15 years 15 years ago providing capital to middle market companies was the purview of the banks they dominated the space and great recession happened regulations changed leverage lending guidelines changed and suddenly became difficult for banks to be able to support this asset class and so markets do what they do they find their ways to solve problems and you you saw the evolution of what we originally called shadow banking then we called non-banking and today we call direct lending and so Phase one of the evolution is the opportunity set moving from banks to non-banking platforms. The opportunity set has always been there. Nothing's changed. It's not new. It's just who are the providers and the participants within that asset class. The second element of this, I think, is really what's happened over the last handful of years, where this asset has become much more broadly accepted. You know, I would argue mainstream. You know, in early days, you had, you know, quirky one-off direct lenders solving problems. You know, today, this is a trillion-dollar asset class. You know, and you have some incredibly big, successful names in the market today regularly, you know, providing these solutions, you know, to these companies. And so for me, when I think about the evolution of where this is going, the market continues to expand. Right? We're seeing more capital coming in. And what we're actually seeing happen in this next phase of evolution is whereas historically, direct lending solely focused in the core metal market. Today, it's not uncommon to see billion-dollar direct lending deals getting done. So more capital is coming in. It's driving greater deployment. And what's ultimately happening is these direct, this direct lending asset class
0: is continuing, in my view, to intrude upon the, the traditional banking markets. Can you help me understand when you say a middle market, the middle market, I've heard that term, a lot of people define it different ways. How yeah. do you define middle market?
1: Yeah, I know. That's, that's, a, that's a great question. So we have a very specific definition. We call it the core middle market, and we define it multiple ways. Let's start with enterprise value. These are businesses generally with enterprise values less than $750 million in size. Now you take that to the next step. So what does that imply in terms of typical debt facilities? So you're generally looking at, at debt tranches ranging in the neighborhood of, let's call it 100 to 400 million. The other way we talk about this middle market is in terms of using EBITDA, which is obviously a proxy for, for cash flow. And when we think about the sweet spot for core middle market direct lending, we're generally looking at companies with EBITDA ranging from 20 to 50 million dollars in size. That's the classic traditional core middle market. And that's where we've chosen to invest. And we've chosen to invest there because if you look back over the past 20 years and you look at the performance within that sector, what you will see is within this core metal market, it's demonstrated some of the most stable and consistent performance. And I think equally important today, when you start to contrast that with other opportunities more broadly across direct lending and private debt, we believe today it still offers the most attractive yields and at the same time, some of the strongest creditor protections. So for us, you know, this core middle market, the 750 million enterprise value or less, that's really what we think is a sweet spot.
0: We're trying to do that every day here, Ron, with (laughs) insuranceAUM.com. We're trying to get to the middle market phase. So <laughs> let me just ask one thing, and I don't know if you're the right guy for this, but why do you think the banks came out of that? Because I 100% agree with you, right? The banks have exited this space, and it's created a great opportunity. Was there a catalyst for that change? Was it the GFC? Is that what took them out? Can you give us a, a sense for that?
1: Yeah. So like, I've been in the business for almost 30 years, and you know anybody that's been in the business that long started on the banking side. Right? I'm classically credit trained. I worked at you know two of the largest banks in the country, and I lived it. I worked in private equity coverage models, leverage finance models. I think you know what typically happens, you know, when skies are blue, you know, there's incentive to just continue to drive business. And you will sometimes see, you know, discipline fall by the wayside. And when you think about the legacy bank models, right, these were fee-oriented models, right? We'll underwrite, we'll syndicate. We'll churn capital, we'll make lots of fees. And over time, as the markets continue to grow and flourish, just the level of aggressive investment you know, just continued to expand. The Great Recession hits, and all these assets start suddenly getting marked down dramatically. And as we know, banks are highly, highly levered vehicles. right? And I think if you go back to the 90s and into the, you know, into the early 2000s, before some of the changes to the regulations, there were flaws in the way banks risk-weighted their capital. And so what happened in the Great Recession when performing loans were suddenly getting marked down as 70 and 60 and 50, suddenly banks didn't have the capital to be able to support those assets. And it went through a very, very painstaking process to transition, to move, to solve that. But coming out of that, regulations changed. And regulations basically were put in place to say, you know what, banks, do your job. Your job is not to be taking undue risk with our FDIC-insured capital. Your job is to be supporting companies, giving them all the things that banks are required to do. And as a consequence of that, when you look at the changes that happen on the regulatory side, it became more difficult and more expensive by design for banks to be able to support these companies. The amount of risk-weighted capital that they had to put behind these assets by design were made such that it, it no longer was advantageous for banks to be pursuing these opportunities. And so that's predominantly what drove banks out of the market. Again, the demand side, the opportunity set didn't go away. Exactly. If anything, it's it's grown. Yeah. And so, you know, what you started to see happen, you saw a lot of exodus of the talent pool out of banks. You know, we all had the skill set. We were all these classically credit trained, you know, leverage folks. We knew how to underwrite businesses. We knew how to structure it. And suddenly the opportunity set for this type of stable income floating rate asset became available to a whole different, you know, opportunity set for investors. And that's really sort of what drove the asset class out of the banking market into the private debt markets.
0: When you're talking about working with private equity firms, I'm assuming that you have ongoing relationships with of a, a group of private equity firms. And these are not one-off deals. You know these people, you've done the do-dilly, you know the story with them. And that's got to help you in both directions on deal flow, right? I mean, is that a, an accurate assessment? Yeah. So I think sourcing,
1: having a differentiated approach to sourcing is one of the most critical components of being successful in direct lending. And so when I think about how we go to market on the sourcing side. You know, look, it starts with the fact that we like to work with private equity firms that we know or we've worked with before. We understand the type of operational expertise they can bring to the table. We understand the type of governance they can contribute. Importantly, we understand how they're going to respond if things don't necessarily go according to plan. We want to make sure these are well-capitalized private equity firms that can contribute more capital into these businesses. And I think, again, what's important here, you know, when I think about our platform and my team, you know, We've been doing this for so long that when you look across our portfolio at the investments we've done and with whom we've done them on the private equity side, what I would tell you is in the vast majority of cases, you can measure the length of the relationships we have those private equity firms in multiples of decades as opposed to multiple years. I mean, in many cases, these are, you know, the name partners at these private equity firms, you know, were associates where we were sitting, you know, cube by cube back, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, running models at midnight. And so if you have that level of relationship and experience and repeat business, there's just a level of comfort on both sides, right? I mean, we want to work with private equity firms that we believe are great investors, but it's a partnership. You know, they want to find direct lenders that are going to not just support them on the initial deal, but be there for them as they look to do incrementals and, and transform these businesses over time such that they can execute on their strategies. And I think just to, one more point I want to make on this, because it's such an important component sourcing. You know, one of the reasons, you know, I joined Invesco was because of the strength of the institutional platform. You know, today at Invesco, we have over $30 billion of capital invested in the portfolio of companies of more than 200 private equity firms. And the reason that's important is because, you know, private equity firms are not just doing broadly syndicated deals anymore. You'll see private equity firms doing everything from small middle market on up to multi-billion dollar corporates. And what our PE firms are looking for are direct lenders that can support them across the size spectrum they want to consolidate down to fewer lenders that can do more for them and so we believe by being able to support them across from small middle market all the way on up to multi-billion dollar corporates we ele- it elevates the strength of the relationship and that ultimately drives what we believe is a really compelling sourcing advantage so it's, it's a lot that factors into sort of sourcing on the pe side but when you get it right.
0: And you have the right set of customers, you know. You can just do some some really exciting things within this space. Yeah, I mean that's that makes total sense to me. And I, so you mentioned Kind of changing gears a little bit. You mentioned healthcare companies. I, you know, I love. You know, I'm a I'm a bond geek, and stable and boring is is you know it's music to a bond geek's ears, right? You <laughs> talked about underlying health of companies in the segment that you focus on. How have those companies weathered the COVID-19 crisis, the supply chain business? What have you seen out of these middle market companies?
1: Yeah, you know, we sort of talk about it in two phases. You know, we talk about what happened during COVID, and then we talk about, you know, second derivative implications of COVID. So, So, you know, let's just start with COVID. You know, every deal we do, we will run all sorts of modeling sensitivities. We'll assume market cycles, credit dislocations. The idea being you want to test these companies any way you can under adverse scenarios such that you can really assess where you think what the appropriate debt service capability of these businesses are and what they're going to look like if things go the wrong way. Now, nobody... Nobody was ever modeling COVID, right? Nobody would have ever anticipated that. And I think, again, here, to some extent, I think the direct lenders that came out the other side of it well were the ones that were disciplined in terms of their asset selection. You know, and I can tell you across our portfolio, we had one name that got caught in the crosshairs. And what's interesting is this is where the second piece of your strategy falls into place, right? Are you backing the right sponsors? And in our case... You know, we went through an extensive modeling exercise when COVID hit with our sponsors to understand what this company might need over the course of the next 12 months. Those private equity firms contributed additional capital to buy that company the time to get through COVID. I can tell you today that company is back at pre-COVID levels and doing incredibly well. So if you find the right businesses, you're disciplined in terms of selection, you know, you're going to weather just about any economic dynamic that occurs, be it COVID, recession, etc. Now, what's interesting is sort of what we call this the second derivative dynamic, right, which is inflation, labor challenges, supply chain constraints. And I would tell you, you know, one of the things, one of the other interesting dynamics around direct lending is because these are smaller deals and there are small, you are only two or three Lenders typically in a transaction. We have a lot of great access to our management teams. In many cases, we have board visitation rights. We get monthly reporting, and so I'm having regular dialogue with almost every one of my management teams. And I would tell you, it's it's front of mind for everyone. You know, and and they're all we're all talking about it. You know, we're seeing costs rising here. We're having challenges retaining these folks or, or bringing on new individuals. But what I would tell you is, if you've structured these deals correctly and you've backed the right management teams, you know what we're seeing today across the portfolio is it's not systemic. You know, there are challenges. And if you found companies that have the operating models to be able to flex, you know, whether it be cost side or be able to pass through, you know, price increases, Companies are coming through the other end of it. You know, I think we're being extra careful and judicious in terms of making investments. But I would tell you, you know, there's a lot of noise in the market. There's a lot of risk in the market. But, you know, for the right the right investment strategy, these these core middle market companies are doing just fine. And again, that I think is part of the the appeal of this asset class. I, I go back. 20 plus years, I I look at my portfolio, how it managed through the Great Recession, how it's managed through various credit shocks, how it's managed through COVID 19. And I can tell you time and time again if you've got the right companies, right sponsors, right management teams, you're going to come through the other end of it just fine. And that's what we've been saying.
0: I'm looking at this as, you know, post transaction, but there's a pre portion too, right? There's an underwriting portion here. And so, At a high level, can you talk a little bit about your due diligence process? Obviously that's helped by knowing the 200 PE firms that you do know and you have a relationship there and that helps a lot, I'm sure. But can you talk just a little bit about the due diligence process? Yeah, sure. So, you know, direct lending has got a
1: very, it's a very interesting process, right? And if I contrast it with a broadly syndicated market for a second, you know, where you get a call from an agent bank, they send you some materials, you've got a bank meeting next week, you've got a couple of weeks to sort of at best be ready to commit. Our business is very different. You know, I'm going to get a call from a a private equity firm that's either looking at a business or perhaps maybe has something under LOI. And our process, we would argue, is very much akin to private equity. It's very deep dive diligence. We're getting on airplanes. We're flying down to meet with management teams. We're walking facilities. You know, we're talking to third-party advisors. We're buying industry analysis. You know, we're running extensive modeling and sensitivities to, again, to really think about what the proper way to structure these businesses are such that we're comfortable that regardless of the in what environment we may find ourselves in, these businesses are going to be able to come out the other end of it successfully and to be able to service our debt. And I think what's really interesting in the aftermath of COVID, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we complete this extensive multi-month diligence process. One of the key outputs, a series of sensitivities, where again, we attempt to build various idiosyncratic events that can happen such that we understand how these companies are going to perform. The ultimate downside scenario is COVID, right? I don't think anybody's ever built a model before COVID that would have, you know, represented the same level of disaster that you might see within a portfolio company. And so as we think about investing today, you know, part of our thesis is that if we can find a company and management team that we're able to successfully navigate through COVID, we're materially de-risking our investment, you know, uh, approach as we move forward.
0: And so no investment conversation today is complete without talking about ESG. So yeah. can you talk, of course, and we've talked about it a lot and it's easy to talk about and harder to do, right? Yeah. Can you talk about Invesco's private debt platform and how you've integrated ESG into it, into the what we've talked about as the core middle market segment? Sure. Sure. So, so look. Let me just start big picture. Invesco
1: has been an innovator in terms of bringing ESG technology into the broadly syndicated market. We manage over nine billion dollars of dedicated ESG funds. So, ESG is fundamental to our DNA. Now, I think the interesting part of this is is a very different value proposition when you're addressing ESG in the context of broadly syndicated deals, which are you know multi billion dollar companies and have lots of resources to be able to address this relative to bringing ESG into the core metal market, where maybe you're looking at a two or three hundred million dollar company where they certainly don't have the resources to have dedicated ESG individuals focusing on these things. But what we found, notwithstanding that, is that they're no less interested in it and they're no less focused on it. And so our approach to bringing ESG in the core metal market in direct lending really is twofold. You know, number one, we're leveraging that proprietary technology we've developed to evaluate these businesses, to make sure they meet the criteria that we care about in the context of making good ESG investments. But the second element of this, which is, you know, frankly, been very exciting and very rewarding, is we're, we're leveraging this base of knowledge we have and experience across ESG. And we are helping educate our management teams in terms of understanding where they may have future ESG risks or, frankly, where they may have opportunity. And what's been really exciting about this is we help work with them to think about and develop actionable plans and things that they can do over time to improve their overall ESG profile. And so it is core to the DNA of Invesco across our entire private debt platform.
0: It's really interesting that you would take your ESG experience, which is significant, back to your borrower and say, hey, here's some things to think about. Because obviously, as you rightly say, they don't have the resources to have an ESG team like a large company would. I mean, that's something I never considered and a really interesting point. When you look at risk, right? We've talked a little bit about it, but what do you see as the biggest risk in private debt and how are you managing it?
1: Yeah, so look, I think almost regardless of what cycle we're in or where we are, you know. Private debt starts with asset selection. It starts and ends there. For every deal I do, you know, I'm turning down 20, 25 transactions, right? It's really easy to put money to work if you want to. But at the end of the day, it starts with asset selection. And asset selection, you know, again, I've used this term a couple of times. You know, this relates to discipline, right? You know, for us, it's you've got to identify Quality sponsors, you've got to identify quality management teams, you've got to identify companies where you can look through and understand, you know, their pricing pressure, their market share, you know, their ability to flex cap structures. You know, for us, if you ask me where I think the greatest risk is today, I think as more capital continues to flow into direct lending, it creates deployment pressure right, if you look at some of the largest, you know, asset managers in the market met running 20, 30 plus billion dollars in AUM and direct lending, you know, the problem they have is, you know, you can't focus in my market. You can't worry about doing a hundred million dollar deal if you've got a $20 billion book of business. Because one of the things we know about direct lending is a typical asset has an average life of approximately three years. And so if you're running a $20 billion book business every January 1st, you know you're gonna experience runoff in that book quarter plus of your portfolio. So if you're running $20 billion, I'm just going to stick with that number for a sec. You got to find $5 billion of assets just to maintain, let alone achieve whatever new deployment thresholds, targets you've got planned for the year. And so where I see risk is in terms of Behaviors that are become more oriented around AUM deployment rather than absolute investing, and and again, uh, you know, I, I may sound like a broken record, but you know, this is why we continue to focus in this core middle market. Because as we look at the upper end of the middle market, you know, w- which is large, and there's some tremendous, there's some great opportunities there. But as you grow and as you have this deployment pressure, what starts to happen is you have to pivot out of perhaps you know your core expertise into a segment of the market that you know is maybe provides more opportunity in terms of size and deployment. But then suddenly there are other things that that you start to see happen that from our vantage point, you know, sort of maybe – undermine some of the risk. And just, I'll give you an example. If you look at some of these large billion dollar direct lending deals getting done and you contrast them with what we're seeing in core middle market, you know, take a look at the pricing. You start to see a lot of yield compression in the upper end. Take a look at things that are much more difficult to spot, but really important. Get in the credit documentation, look at definitions, dig in there, understand what the covenants really look like. Are they real covenants or are they covey light, covey wide, covey loose, whatever you're, we're seeing up there in the market. Again, I think Ultimately, when investors lose discipline and start to get motivated by things other than being great stewards of capital, I think that's where you, you sort of put yourself at risk.
0: Amen, amen. <laughs> We've talked about this on the demand side. I know from my experience in talking with a zillion people that insurance companies, which is our sole focus, are buying this asset class. What have you seen on the demand side particularly from insurance companies given their need for yield and the fact that this is a floating rate asset, which is right now particularly important.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head, right? So, you know, if you look historically, you know, public fixed income have really been the dominant part of the insurance company's portfolios, right? I mean, I think it's ranged from 60 to 80% of the book and across their general accounts. And I think the issue that insurance companies are having with that asset class is, you know, the persistent low yields. And so, again, like so many others that are looking for yield without taking additional risk, you know, this direct lending asset class, as it's evolved, as it's matured, as it's become more mainstream has become a very, very interesting opportunity set for insurance companies and, frankly, for all investors. And look, there are a lot of other elements of this that I think make sense. You know, we talked about the size of the market. We talked about the demand side. You made a great point, which is this is a floating rate asset class. And we're living in an environment of rising interest rates. And what we know historically is floating rate loans tend to outperform in rising rate environments so you've got some natural hedge against you know rising inflation and i think the other element of this is you know it's it's interesting because we typically price our deals when i underwrite a deal i'm typically thinking about an 8% underwritten yield Right, my book today is underwritten at about 840 basis points, unlevered. That's just asset level. But I think what's really interesting, and, and a component of that, has always been this thing, this LIBOR floor, right, or or SOFR floor, as, it, as as we're transitioning. But what's interesting is for the first time in many years, we've actually breached that 1% floor. And so traditionally. The yields on our assets have all been protected by this LIBOR floor. When LIBOR was 20 bips, it didn't matter. We had a LIBOR floor of 100. But if you look at the market today, LIBOR is now at 140 basis points and climbing. And so this legacy 8% target that we've looked at in the context of this conservative asset class, frankly, is starting to offer some interesting upside. You know, LIBOR, I think by the end of the year, is you know, will be close to 2% according to the forward curve and, and up from there. And so I think, you know, if you're an insurance company, you're looking for, you know, low risk, but, you know, strong yield opportunities where you can hedge against rising rates. Again, this is an asset class. And that's, I think, why we're seeing so much demand come out of the insurance companies into this asset class.
0: Second only to ESG in terms of headlines recently <laughs> is inflation, right? Inflation's a Tough thing to deal with for an insurer, yeah. given that it, it drives the price of their bonds down and the value of their liabilities up. And markets have very short memories, so everybody's concerned about monetary environment, inflationary pressures. How do you see this environment impacting private debt? Yeah. So
1: look, I I think, you know, when you think about rising interest rates, as as we touched on, it's a double-edged sword, right? You know, I I talked a few moments ago about the benefits of rising interest rates. You know, your portfolio is going to start to, you know, benefit from that. we breach the LIBOR floors and the SOFR floors. And it's just more income, you know, at the same leverage multiples, the same risk profile. The other side of that coin, of course, is, you know, companies have to be able to meet their interest payments and service their debt. And so as we start to see interest rates tick up, The question becomes, you know, are these companies going to be able to meet these higher interest rates, these higher debt service needs? And I think there, again, as an investor, you need to look through to these asset managers in terms of how they're thinking about risk. As an example, in terms of our portfolio, our average leverage across the portfolio is 4.7 times, which I would suggest is a very conservative leverage multiple within this market. We're seeing deals getting done at six times, six and a half, and greater than seven times. And when your leverage is that high and interest starts ticking up, you can find yourselves you know, at risk. At 4.7 times leverage across the portfolio, our interest coverage across that portfolio equates to something in the neighborhood of three to one. And so when I look at my portfolio and I, and I sensitize it for rising rates, what I know is I can see rates click up 200, 300, 400 basis points, and these companies that we've invested in will have more than ample cash flow to be able to support the, that increased interest component. The other element of this that I think is really important and interesting is, you know, you talked a little earlier about memories are short, and you're right, because what I think is about to start to come back into the market is something that we used to implement with regularity, which is we used to require these portfolio companies to put hedging in, to protect against this dynamic. If you go back three, four, five years ago, in almost every credit agreement we did, we would stipulate within the terms of that agreement that a certain percentage of a company's outstanding debt needed to be hedged, whether it was a cap or a collar, but we would make sure we understood what the worst case scenario could be in terms of how much interest they could bear. I would suspect, and I would suggest, you're going to start seeing that coming back very quickly as we start to see you know, LIBOR start moving off that floor, that 1% floor that we've been living with for the last several years.
0: Quick, almost last question. What are you most excited about right now, looking forward?
1: You know, look, so number one, Having been in this market and in this industry for, you know, almost 30 years, what excites me is the fact that, you know, this has become such a mainstream asset class today. I think the opportunity set is unlimited. You know, we've got, you know, I love working with with sponsors that I have history with. They're intelligent. They're smart investors. I love being involved with them. I think the opportunity for us to continue to grow this asset class is just incredibly compelling. And I would add to that, you know, when you look at all the, to circle back to our very first discussion. Discussion, when you look at all the risk in the market today, this is an asset class that is almost designed, you know, to play in a volatile environment. We don't have that volatility. We have, you know, this is long-term capital. We can step in where more liquid markets maybe fluctuate or demonstrate challenges or, or problems, you know, deploying our asset class can step in and our asset class can solve problems and our our asset class will benefit from that. So what am I excited? I'm excited to to sort of watch the market over the next five years and continue to see this asset class continue to grow and deliver for our clients.
0: That's fantastic. I got one more for you. You remember your first day of work? Do you remember the first job you had, your real job? Like not your first, like, you know, I worked at a pool. I'm talking about like your first job in this business. Do you remember the first day? I do. I do. Okay. <laughs> Let's just say it's your first day. And before you get in the elevator, and I'm sure if you're anything like me, your knees were knocking. You didn't know what yeah. was going to happen, right? Yep. What would you tell yourself today? If you could talk to that kid, what would you say?
1: It's a it's a great question. So look, I often say I'm pretty boring because I've been doing the same thing for 30 years. And I think... Um, and i'm glad i've done that like i love this business so i think if anything i would just what i would tell my my earlier version of myself is you know just keep plowing forward be Curious, ask questions. You know, this is a complicated, evolving market. There's a lot of smart people above you, you know, that have been doing this a long time. And you need to learn through mentorship. You can't figure all this out on your own. So just just dig in, plow forward, you know, work as hard as you can, work as late as you can, learn as much as you can. And if you do that, you know, you found the right, you know, market segment to sort of play in long term.
0: I love it ron (laughs) kantowitz at invesco managing director head of private debt talking about direct lending ron thanks for being on
1: stuart thank you so much i i I really enjoyed it i appreciate the time
0: our pleasure thanks for listening if you have ideas for podcasts please email me at podcast at insuranceaum.com my name is stuart foley and this is the insurance aum journal podcast